This is Hard Beautiful Journey, a safe space to be open and honest, to speak truth and harness the power of vulnerability and sharing. Unravel the strength of connecting through conversation from mental health, trauma and addictions, to grief and spirituality. This is the podcast to use your voice, because when you use your voice, you ignite your soul. I am your host, Tiffany Vaughn. Join me as I help others talk about their hard, beautiful journey. I know they will inspire you as much as they inspire me. So let's get started. Hey friends, so happy you are here today for this episode of Hard Beautiful Journey. I am so incredibly honored that Dr. Jody Carrington is here to talk with me about something many of us are dealing with, and that is connection. The past two years and counting, we have experienced disconnection from each other more than any other time, and it's created significant challenges for many people. I went into this interview wanting to talk to Jody about teens in particular, but as always, I learned so much from my guests and she helped me realize where the focus should be first. For those of you who don't know who Dr. Jody Carrington is, she is a renowned psychologist sought after for her expertise, energy, and approach to helping people solve their most complex human-centered challenges. Jody focuses much of her work around reconnection, the key to healthy relationships and productive teams. A speaker, author, and leader of Carrington & Company, she uses all she has been taught in her 20-year career as a psychologist to empower everyone she connects with. Jody has worked with kids, families, business leaders, first responders, teachers, farmers, and has spoken in church basements and world-class stages. The message remains the same. Our power lies in our ability to acknowledge each other first. As a warning, this episode contains colorful language, and to be honest, I am here for it. Jody and I have that in common. Sometimes we let our trucker mouths shine. And we also have another thing in common, which you'll hear about in this episode. So let's get to this interview. Hello, Jody. How are you doing today? Oh, so good. Thank you for having me, Tiff. I am beyond excited that you are on my show today. You were supposed to be on about two months ago and the vid got me. So I'm so grateful. Oh my gosh, that's right. Yeah. I'm grateful that uh, we could reschedule and do this. I want to talk about something that you and I have in common first, and you and I are both twin mamas. Ah, so fun. How old are your twins? My twins are almost nine, but I had one before the twins like you did, but you have a boy and then you had twin boy and girl. Yes. I have a girl and then had twin boys. So what point did you actually think you were going to survive? Uh, I don't still. So like, I, I feel <laughs> like every day it's touch and go many days. I feel like, okay, I get it why the universe decided that I needed these three children and you were absolutely right in choosing me. I am the best thing that's ever happened to them. And then in the next like second, I'm like, Oh my God, I am barely hanging on. And I tell people this all the time. Like I wrote a best-selling book called kids these days. I've worked as a child psychologist the most of my career. And if you see me with my own personal children, you wouldn't buy the book, you know? Oh my God. Because 
when we are regulated, we're phenomenal at the things. Phenomenal. We do. Yeah. And like people ask me this shit all the time. What do you think I should do with my kid? I'm like, I don't know. But the thing is, if I were to ask you what you think I should do with my child, when we're both regulated, we both know the answers, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you stay calm and connected as you possibly can. Like that's it. There's no like new shit that we're missing. It's not like, you know what I think? I think you should probably try to like, I don't know, like introduce a coconut cream pie recipe while the kids are sleeping and you're doing push-ups. I think that is the uh, thing that nobody's thought about. No, yeah, there's nothing new in this space of relationship and connection. It's just that you never get good at it. That's the thing that we don't, I think, talk about nearly enough. Absolutely. So the point where I thought I would actually survive um, was at 15 months and it's the day that our nanny landed at the airport. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and we had a live-in nanny at 15 months until they were about three. And yeah, before that though, I honest to God thought I was going to die every day just from lack of sleep because it's no joke, right? It's no joke. And we were never meant to do any of this alone. So I love that idea. Every time my mom or my mother-in-law or, you know, we had so much help and support throughout their life. Um, all three of them actually, because, you know, their dad is full-time. I work full-time. We, you know, we manage the five of us beautifully, but like so much of the time now, like we have this beautiful soul who like is in our house every afternoon and is there if I'm not there to greet the kids when they come home or if Aaron's not there or whatever. And honest to God, like she is not for them. She's for me. Oh, let's get this right. <laughs> it was not for them. It was for James and I, like right. totally, because <laughs> our sanity was like gone after about yeah. the third month with no sleep. Yeah. And it's a massive luxury and a privilege. And I get all that, you know, like never ever want to underestimate that. I think what's really interesting is though, for me, you know, even when I brought the twins home, we had a, a nurse that I worked with at the children's hospital. And she said to me when I was pregnant, Hey, like, I'd really love to get into doula-ing. Can I be your doula during this? And I was like, Oh my gosh, Karen, I would love that. And can I just tell you, like, she showed up. I still remember opening the door in our little condo in Calgary. I'd been in the hospital for an extra week because my blood pressure was through the roof. I had these two tiny, tiny, tiny twins, Asher's two and a half. And she like showed up with an activity bin for Asher wow. at like seven 30 at night, which was bath time. And they were too tiny. So I didn't bath them in the big bath. So we'd always bath them in sinks. And she just like came in and was like, can I do that? And I was like, I like, I want to make out with you right now. Like this is <laughs> the best thing that could have ever happened in my life of life. And I think like, that is the thing we underestimate right now after we've been through this, like disconnection that is COVID that like the bar is so low. You just be nice to anybody. And they're like, Oh my God. Right. But everybody's so shitty and chippy right now that our kids are paying the price. Mm-hmm. Right. They are. And sure. I think that's the issue. We talked about this before we started, you know, about like teenagers and how do we like walk our adolescents? They're the ones who I think have paid the biggest price in this COVID journey because their independence and their ability to sort of like step out of the world and mess up has been significantly thwarted for the physical safety of the communities. Not because we've intended to do this for them, but I think that they will pay the highest cost because in this process of not learning how to regulate or how to reach out or how to navigate hard things, they've missed those two really important developmental years. And so expect them to be immature. I expect them to be really dysregulated right now. Um, And I think we got to normalize a little bit of that with, you know, parents Mm -hmm. and teachers and, you know, everybody who wants to get back on track, like, whoa, 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 
pump the brakes just a little bit. We need to adjust the expectation a little bit now. Yeah. Just for now, not forever, mm-hmm. but for now. And so like, can we give ourselves some grace? Cause we're tired. And so when they get dysregulated, which should be their job, we snap too. Mm-hmm. And we get really worried about that. Right. So how can we regulate the fact that us big people have been in a heightened state of arousal for such a long period of time, which is, I don't think we're doing a very good job of right now. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you're seeing in your work um, with the teenagers? Like, where do you see the biggest struggles for them? Well, I think that, you know, right now, like fundamentally as a globe, we have never been this disconnected and we are wired for connection. The only way kids learn that they matter, they learn how to regulate emotion, which is really, you know, how to stay calm in times of distress, how not to lose your friggin' mind. You can't tell kids how to do it. You got to show them Mm -hmm. and zero to two kids lose their mind all the time. That's how they communicate, right? When you bring an infant home from the hospital, they cry. The job of a big person is to regulate them, to walk them through it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you do that enough time for little people, they start to gain the skills of emotional regulation. The second most critical time of dysregulation uh, for kids is adolescence because the choices are getting a little bit riskier. There's tons of hormones, the bodies are growing. And typically primary caregivers are going through their own midlife crisis or struggles or really assuming that these, you know, bigger bodied kids can handle some of the bigger things and they can, but typically not to the same degree that we expect them to, right. Cause they can't sustain it. So in some moments, yes, they can look after their five siblings. And in some moments, yes, they can cook dinner and do all their laundry and do all those things, but they need to be reminded of it again. It's not that they forget it. We're like, what the hell you used to be able to do this. And so the issue is the emotional dysregulation happens a lot in adolescence and when we think about, you know, when those needs aren't caught or when we don't catch them, when they fall consistently, uh, we see an increase in anxiety and depression. And that is certainly played out in the data in this moment, you know, the highest risk of suicide in our province, where you and I are both speaking in Alberta right now is middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. And those are typically the people charged to walk home our adolescents. Yeah. There are hockey coaches and they're the dads that, you know, our sons are leaning on and that our daughters need to sort of make sense of hard things. So we see a really big rise in anxiety and depression in adolescents higher than we've ever seen in, you know, in, in our respective careers. And so it's a function of a trend that we were going towards prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic has expedited that because the only way we know we matter is when we look into the eyes of other people, right? When we are face-to-face. And the one thing that has changed in our lifetimes in the last two generations is proximity has increased significantly. Mm -hmm. And we have not at the same time included best practices that would involve an increase in relationship and connection. So we're really struggling to name our emotions. We're really struggling to stay connected. We would much rather email somebody or text somebody or, you know, watch Netflix at night rather than sit down and look at our partners because the hardest things we will ever do is look into the eyes of the people we love. And we have more exit ramps now more than ever. And we're just coming off of two years of, for the physical safety of our communities, having to disconnect. Mm -hmm. So this is the primary ingredients for a mental health pandemic. Mm -hmm, For sure. I have seen that in my own family. And one of the things that I'm doing with our daughter who is 13 is I'm just getting her to see somebody and just to talk through some stuff and let her know that she can, you know, speak to somebody else besides her parents about some of the things that she's struggling with. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is helping. What other strategies can you give parents 
that are struggling with a teenager with their mental health? I think that's the point, right? Is oftentimes we want to fix our kids. And so as a child psychologist, I rarely see kids. I assess kids, but I rarely treat them because um, often if I treat in isolation, I'm missing everything. Yeah. I would say like the biggest bang for the buck always is, are we looking after ourselves as parents? Yes. Because when we're okay, those babies will be okay. If we're not okay, our kids don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And so much about this is you're right. Kids need places to go. So even if therapy isn't accessible or you can't afford therapy or all of those things happen, how are we making sure that we're building those villages around our teens, right? Who's their favorite teacher? Connect to them. Who's their hockey coach? Who's their soccer coach? Can you say, you know, can you take Dylan for a Slurpee? Like, I just want to make sure he's doing okay. And so where's the best place we talk to kids, particularly teens in the car with a snack. <laughs> that is so true. Oh my God. Oh my God. Cause they're regulated. You can't chew and swallow and be dysregulated. So I like to always get a Slurpee or a ice cap or a whatever. Yeah. And you can't regulate a kid with a carrot stick. So you're not going to be like bringing fucking veggies <laughs> along for the ride. You know, you need a good set of chocolate bars. And you have those conversations. Usually your kids will open up with me uh, probably easier and my kids will open up with you, right? So who are those people that, you know, you can say, you know, can you take Libby for a sleepover or whatever that deal looks like? And that's really what we need. That's what therapy looks like a lot for adolescents is do they feel seen and heard by somebody? And, you know, teachers, I mean, I spent a lot of time with educators primarily for this reason is because our educators, our K to 12 educators spend more waking hours a day in the run of a school week with our kids than we do. And so if they don't know how much they matter and they don't, they're really poorly funded and, you know, poorly compensated. And there's not a lot of conversations other than, you know, what are we doing for kids these days? If they're not okay, so part of the biggest job we can do or the biggest, most successful thing we can do as parents is to love on our teachers and our hockey coaches and the people in our village, right? If we can't get to our kids most effectively, then, you know, who can? So what can be done more in schools? Like I think about this so many times and have said it on this podcast a few times is I see progress being made, but like, why can't there be more courses or subjects on mental health Uh, in schools? Right. I think it's important to talk about, you know, emotional health and sexual health and financial health and all those things. Like I would agree that's completely where we need to go in terms of curriculum. But I think the biggest mistake we make is we don't look after the big people Mm. and there's no standardization of uh, mental health programs in K to 12 education at all. In fact, within the same school division, often mental health is dealt with very differently in one school than it is the other. And so part of my response to that is, you know, I've spent a lot of time consulting in schools because typically mental health programs in schools historically have been, were friendship programs. We don't deal with, you know, the psychiatric issues. We don't, whatever, whatever. But the problem is 72% of all mental health issues that will arise in adulthood will be present by grade 12. Mm -hmm. So being able to have a strong mental health component of any education system is critical to the longevity of our children, the health and the mental health when they become adults or they transition out of K to 12 education. So one of the biggest investments in my mind is how do we really think about standardizing or beefing up mental health programs in K to 12 education that are both trauma informed and relationship focused. So I made a program 
and it's called reconnect. And I used every therapeutic skill that I ever had in my life. I've been doing this for 20 years and COVID was this, I was going to schools and training their mental health teams. And it was like three days of training. It was really dumb. So then COVID forced us to put this into an online program. And so it's an eight module program and it's a university level course. And it's ran by me and another psychologist. And it is the thing in my mind, like this is my hope, right? Is to continue to contribute. I wrote a couple of books um, that are accessible to teachers and parents, like kids these days and teachers these days. And then this program, this university level course, I hope is a place that I would love it to be the standard of practice in, in school divisions across North America, where we focus on the clinicians or the senior administrators in school divisions to say, you know, what is your philosophical approach to the mental health of kids and staff? Mm-hmm. Because if they're regulated, they can learn. If they're dysregulated, it doesn't matter how much effort and Chromebooks and shit you put into your curriculum. It's relevant because mm-hmm. they cannot learn and they cannot teach. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I thousand percent agree. And the one thing you were saying as well is for the kids to find that person or people that they can connect with Mm -hmm. and that they can feel comfortable sharing anything in that safe space for them. For myself, I do have a nephew that my brother, his dad just passed away. And I said to him, I said, I want to be your safe space. I want to be that person where you know you can share anything with me and it will not leave me at all. And that was huge for him. You could actually see the relief and the weight lift off of his shoulders and he just opened up. And when you can be that person for a teenager, I think it's so important for them to have that outlet, right? Well, absolutely. And you can't tell them, you have to show them, right? And so this guy had enough of a relationship with you, right? That those words meant something. And oftentimes we say this to kids all the time, come talk to me if you need somebody to talk to, or I'm here to listen. That's kind of bullshit because we often do that to each other, right? Like I'll be here for you reach out if you need it. That is the most debilitating piece of mental illness or mental health issues is that I can't reach out. Mm -hmm. So when we do things like you just did with your nephew, where we reach in, in those moments and be like, Hey, listen, let's go for a drive. I'm just checking in, right? I was thinking about your dad today. I remember I heard this song. Remember we loved this. Remember when we did this? Mm -hmm. And that's often the times, right? And so as a hockey coach, right? Oh my God, I love your hoodie. Mm -hmm. Or let's practice this TikTok. Remember, let's do this. Oh my God, you're so good at that. And so then that's my segue to sort of getting you to know that this is a safe place you can land if you need to. Because you can't, I mean, my grandfather used to say this, you can't lead a horse to water. But it's like that idea that I can't, push you to calm down. I can't push you to talk. I have to create that space that you, you know, when it's, it's right for you. And it typically isn't even most right for me when, you know, yeah, it's inopportune times. Yeah. The thing that I did too, that I think gave him the confidence to talk to me and show his emotions is I showed mine. Yeah. It's an interesting thing around vulnerability, right? Because it's like, we do that in leading, but it's like this fine line between sort of how do we show them how to do it versus make them feel responsible for doing it for us. Mm-hmm. And so it's that interesting thing, right? Like I got to tell you how I feel about your dad or how much I'm going to miss him. And I just wonder if you feel that same way too mm-hmm. is really helpful versus like, I don't think I could ever go, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing about with their adolescence is they can become like our friends versus our ability to still sort of show emotion vulnerability and then lead them in that way. Right. 
Exactly. And that's how I felt it was working. And, and like, there's other times with him, like on his Instagram, I'll be like, that is cool. What you just did with that video. You know what I mean? Or like, if I see where he's going a little bit, (laughs) maybe not the right direction. I'm like, "Mm." so, Hey, let's talk about that. What's that about? Right. So just having me as his safe space, I can see it helping him a lot. And you're watching and I'm watching. Yeah. He knows you're watching. Yeah. Yeah. And that he's not alone. He'll never be alone. Right. All three of them will never be alone. So we talked offline before we started. So yeah, my, my brother passed away uh, five months ago of a, a drug overdose and which is another epidemic we are dealing with right now is opiate addictions and all of that. What are you seeing in that regard um, with kids that are left behind? Oh, that's such a crazy question. Okay. So what I think the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Because oftentimes what happens is we start to feel shame about ourselves, or we start to feel like we've dropped the ball in a number of times and being in reality becomes much more difficult than just taking a break from it, numbing out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the issues around relationships are where we feel like we're failing the most. Right. So as parents or as employees or siblings or, you know, sons or daughters. Right. And there's then so much guilt around that for the people that are left behind, particularly when there is a, a death by suicide or there's a death by overdose, which is, you know, indicative of those of us left behind, like, what did we miss? And why weren't we more? And, you know, if you needed connection, I was here to connect to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult to sort of hang on to those emotions because what is often so difficult to get through in the middle of an addiction is just how much you matter. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we sort of like lost that connection to themselves. And so how we sort of start to do that work becomes so hard. And so for their babies or the people that, you know, love them, it's so difficult to understand that process and what that pain is like. Um, and just imagine, I mean, how much he loved his kids and how much he loved you mm-hmm. that it didn't match. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is just, it doesn't seem fair and it doesn't make sense, but my goodness, the more I think about, I don't think it's a circumstance that is happening by coincidence because of the more disconnected we become. Mm-hmm. I have to talk about this, the proximity, you know, two generations ago, think about the square footage of the house that your grandfather was raised in and the square footage of the house, in which we raise our babies now, right. In two generations ago, your grandparents and his siblings wouldn't have ever missed each other because they're growing up in this very small house, mm-hmm. right. If somebody loses their mind, we got eyes on, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And the bigger market disconnected we become, oh, I texted him today. I checked, you know, we look very different. We get a very different sense when we get eyes on, mm-hmm. but we have less and less opportunity to do that. And COVID exacerbated that. Mm-hmm. It did. Because we don't need to look right. Or I, oh, I'm not well, or no, I'm fine. No, good. You're just checking in. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the problem is we want everybody we love to be fine. So when they say they're fine, we're like, oh, good. But it's really hard to know because the proximity has decreased so significantly. That's interesting that you say that even because like even just thinking about homes these days and that people want a more open concept right? and the walls are not there anymore. Yeah, Those walls actually brought you together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They actually put you in the same space for, you know, communicating and connecting. And now the walls are gone and it's like, where are you? <laughs> Oh my God. Well, I say this all the time. We were just talking about, you know, obviously we, our twins are the same age and our oldest, his room is in the basement in our bungalow. And it's 
supper time. I don't even get off my ass to go downstairs to look at his face. I text him when supper is right. <laughs> Jesus, you know, what is wrong with us? Right. I feel justified because I'm overwhelmed. I'm exhausted. I'm navigating online shit all day long. I like, I'm single-handedly saving the world over here. I'm coaching hockey. I'm trying to keep my own fucking marriage together. I'm writing a book. I'm doing other things. So you know what? Like, I'm going to just, I can't even type the words to him. I send him a, a voice memo. <laughs> no emoji, a spaghetti and a glass of wine. So he knows that I'm half cut. He better fucking hurry up. And then a guy that's running, right? Like several times ready. Mama's already drinking. Run. Get up here now. Oh my God. That is so perfect. Right. I haven't even been using the emojis. I'm using the emojis from now on because that is awesome. <laughs> Look it. See, you're such a better mom than me. You're sending voice messages. But I think that's the point, right? Is that like we, I think, have understood we were really raised in this world uh, of behaviorism so you make a good choice i reward you you don't make a good choice i punish you and still many parents employ those practices if their kids aren't regulated or don't make good choices the problem is those best practices were developed in a world that no longer exists because we developed behaviorism in a time where we looked at each other all the time mm. where we were engaged in relationship and so now parents say this to me you know i'm trying to take away his ipad and his ipod and he's being an asshole well no shit because the relationship that was there when parents were even in our generation punishing us for bad behavior we had just ate supper together we had spent a lot of time you know all of those things had changed significantly and i was reading some data about this the other day where like our great grandparents, the thought was our great grandparents looked at their children 72% more of the time than we look at ours. What? And that's something. Because think about even the size of schoolhouses, right? Like our twins, well, my son, who's in grade six, has five teachers. And we're in a small town, so the middle school isn't that big. But still, he doesn't know who's in the French immersion wing. He doesn't know, and they time recesses differently, so they don't really know. You know, I saw this teacher yesterday. We were at a fundraiser last night and, and I was like, who's that? And he's like, oh, like that's Mr. Marshall. And, you know, he's like, I don't see him very much. I really wish I would have had him because da, 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 da. And there's like my mom, for sure. My grandfather had one teacher. Yeah. Oh, I had one teacher. I remember having just one teacher each year. Like, yeah. Who knew everything about you and everything about your mom and like all of those things. Right. And so it was so easier to know like, okay, so Tiffany's mom and dad are going through a divorce. Here's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus like you're bouncing between five different teachers and they're like, I don't know. I don't know. Even this kid really. Right. <laughs> yeah. Even during right. report cards. Who's this? Uh, exactly. And subs and like all of that kind of stuff. Right. Like yeah, yeah. Na- navigating COVID out of those things. Like we really, the education system was really that village that was so critical in keeping our kids healthy. And as that's been obliterated by COVID and we're expediting this process in our, you know, bigger centers and communities and online options and outreach programs, like we're missing the whole, I think, point of education, which is so critically important in walking our kids through the emotional part. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. One of the things that we were doing with our kids and surprisingly COVID actually made it stop, which is really weird, but we still do it once in a while is we sit as a family and we actually say what we're grateful for that day. We were like even writing it down and doing all that kind of thing. And there was a point where like our kids were arguing over who was going to say grateful first, which Ah. I'll I'll take it. If they're like wanting to do it that bad, they're going to argue, give her. What do you think about like just the gratitude practice itself with teenagers? Do you think that that would be something that helps them with their mental health? Yeah, of course. I think that gratitude is such a loaded word, right? Like it just, it gets like, it feels like you should be eating kale and doing yoga. (laughs) 
And I think like with teenagers, you want to make it as sexy, right? As you possibly can. How do you make it sexy? Come well, on, tell me. It's like, what's the best thing that happened to you today? Yeah. Right. It's like highs and lows. It's like happies and crappies. It's like, oh, I like that one. Happies and crappies. Uh-huh. That was my friend Jeremy Allen came up with that. He's a funeral director. He's just like 35 year old freaking amazing funeral director. And we talk all the time about like, how do we walk our kids through grief and how do we, you know, navigate these big emotions and little people. And it's really like, how do you find the joy? And it becomes a choice. Like, can you belly laugh even when you buried your dad? Can you find happy times, you know, when you're sitting in the front row of a funeral? And the answer is yes, but it becomes a conscious effort and gratitude like anything else, any other practice is just that it's a practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you don't practice your golf swing, you're shitty at it. You know, you might get one or two good shots because you're half in the bag or something, but generally speaking, you've got to be good, right? Just like mindfulness or spirituality or ski jumping. If you don't practice it, you won't get good at it. And joy, gratitude, it's the same mm-hmm. thing. And I mean, that's why we have to say it's a gratitude practice because it's easier to find all the things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. It's easier not to go down the course and do nine holes a day. It's easier not to do those things. Why is that though? Why is that easier? Because uh, it's effort. And and we want shortcuts, right? Like, so again, it's more important to sit and play cards with our kids. But at the end of the day, like, fuck, I'm so tired. I just want to watch Netflix. So Aaron has got, he's trying to figure out how to launder money in the Ozarks. And I'm trying to figure out how to cook meth in Breaking Bad. And (laughs) and we both feel justified, right? Like give the kids their iPads. They want to watch theirs. We're going to watch ours. We're like, you know, we really love each other. Like, that's not a question, but we all just feel justified. And And when you have that option, you'll take it. Our grandparents didn't have that option. They played crib every night. A lot of crib. Right. A lot of crib. As you would. (laughs) If you lived in a house the size of this room and it's like seven o'clock at night, nobody's tired. You're like, okay, let's break out the board games. Right. And they had two channels. Maybe. Oh, God. (laughs) Right. Like my dad didn't have a TV until he was 18 years old, you know, like. So it's just like, I think there's a reconnection on purpose that's going to need to happen. And it's not going to be easy. We're not going to get great at it. We just have to do it just a little bit tiny more often. Reconnection on purpose. That is, I love that. Uh So speaking of gratitude, that is how I end all of my interviews is being grateful for something. So I am going to say what I'm grateful for. And then if you want to say what you're grateful for, that would be cool. So today I am grateful that it is Friday. Mm. I always say Friday is my favorite day of the week and it's Friday. And I couldn't think of a better way to end my week than talking to you because I love you. I think that this interview will help a lot of parents with ways of helping their teens in such a very trying time that we're going through. What are you grateful for today? I am. Listen, I'm surrounded by the best people. And I'm very grateful for who I get to have coffee with today. Tomorrow, I get to sink into an event that we're going to do in Red Deer. And, um, you know, some of the people who believe the most in connection and reconnection are going to be in the same room, including my two best friends that I, you know, I met in kindergarten. Awesome. And so I'm just very, very grateful for the relationships that I have because they are life-giving. They are. They are so life-giving. Thank you so much for your time today. I honestly, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come on my show. Thank you for having me. Okay. I mean, come on, right? That was so amazing. Thank you, Jody. Since I've recorded this interview, I tried something with my family. 
I tried the happy and crappy as an alternative to asking them what they were grateful for. And it was interesting. (laughs) And here is why. When I first said the words, tell me about a happy and crappy moment from today, the look of horror that I said the word crappy almost made me burst out laughing. And then they got into it. And I gotta say, I think we'll keep doing this. Because hearing about the crap is where some of the good conversations can start with our family. It may be when we find out that they have hurt feelings from something that happened at school or during sports, or maybe a sibling or parent was just being an arse to them. The combination of happy and crappy is, after all, the point of this podcast, the hard and beautiful parts of our journey. So let's talk about both. And Jody, when you said reconnection on purpose, it's like a lightning bolt hit my whole damn body. This journey back to reconnecting with each other has to be on purpose. It's not going to happen without effort, without setbacks, but we need to collectively reach out our hands and our hearts and do this together. One smile and one or two kind words is a good place to start. I challenge you today to reconnect with someone. If you are interested in being on my podcast to talk about your own hard, beautiful journey, please check out my website at hardbeautifuljourney.com and submit the request form. And also, please be sure and stop by the Hard Beautiful Journey blog, which has all the episodes, including show notes, photos, videos, and where to find the guests I have had on my show. And finally, I know I keep saying it, but I would love if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star rating and review. I absolutely love reading these reviews. I really, really do. And I could read yours on my next episode. Until next time, please be kind and stay well. Bye-bye.